When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey cuz, welcome to the 2023 holiday episode of How Good It Is with songs inspired by World War II. Let's go, Jenna. How good it is. Hi there, I'm Claude Call. I am proud to be amongst you this holiday season. Let's get right to it. It occurred to me a while back that World War II was kind of a boom time for several industries. Factories were operating around the clock in many cases, producing materials for our troops so that they could defeat Hitler, Mussolini, and the Emperor Hirohito. Hollywood was producing films for both escapist purposes and to provide us with the best propaganda money can buy. Radio stations, likewise, were giving us entertainment and reminding us to buy war bonds. One of the things I rather enjoy about old-time radio programs is the not-always-sly references to the war, including characters making war bond purchases or talking about shortages or other sacrifices that they're helping uh, that they're making to help support the troops. There's a really touching episode of the a quiz show, Truth or Consequences, which is ordinarily pretty silly, but this one, not so much. It's from shortly after the war's end, and during the show, producer and host Ralph Edwards takes a wounded soldier in a California military hospital on a virtual tour of his hometown in Tennessee. It probably cost a fortune for the network to produce, and it impressed enough people that it's one of only maybe a couple of dozen episodes that still exist to this day, even though hundreds were produced. But the popular music industry did quite well also, and some of the composers of that time were naturally affected by the fact that they had friends and family across the sea in Europe and Asia. And when they were commissioned to write Christmas-related songs, in some cases, they drew upon that experience to write songs which are considered classics today. And I'd like you to ponder that for a minute. We have a lot of songs which are considered to be Christmas classics, but a huge chunk of them were written in that era. The decades since then have only produced a few new songs each. You've got Jingle Bell Rock, Run Run Rudolph, and of course, uh, Christmas, Baby Please Come Home from the 60s. Uh, Happy Christmas, War is Over, I Believe in Father Christmas, and I'll even concede Wonderful Christmas Time from the 70s. Christmas Wrapping and Last Christmas from the 80s, and of course, All I Want for Christmas is You from the 90s. But nearly everything else produced during that time is either a rehash of songs from the 40s or that generation's spin on the old traditional tunes. And that's not to knock them. I mean, Alison Moyet's version of A Coventry Carol is haunting and beautiful. Even if you don't like Mannheim Steamroller, their version of Carol of the Bells, it's intense and it's driving and you can't help but bop along with it. And... I'm starting to think that you couldn't ruin O Holy Night if you tried. But the stuff from the 40s comes from a very specific place, and I think it's a place that has really touched us, at least here in America. So I wanted to bring you a few songs with World War II-era origins, hoping you'll catch that specific brand of nostalgia next time you hear them. We'll start with this first song, which doesn't have any overt war references to it. In fact, none of these songs do. But as usual... 
there's a backstory that you might not know. In 1943, Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine wrote a song of hope that wound up in a film that's considered by many to be a Christmas movie, even though very little of it takes place during Christmas time. The film was Meet Me in St. Louis, released in 1944. Close to the end of the film, Judy Garland's character sings a song to her five-year-old sister, played by Margaret O'Brien, who is distraught at the prospect of the family moving from St. Louis to New York. The song, of course, is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Now, at that time, the war in Europe was could have been probably at its lowest point for the Allied forces. The Russians were fighting off Germans in Stalingrad. The Germans were liquidating the ghettos of Warsaw. Convoys are getting destroyed by U-boats, and that's just the first half of the year. But the song is unmistakable in its references to the experience of people being separated at this time of year, the general melancholy of missing somebody, and the fickleness of fate. It expressed hope that these golden days of yore will come back and that everybody will be reunited if the fates allow. In fact, Martin's original lyrics were much darker. For example, the song originally began, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may all be living in the past. There's actually more stuff like that. And so I'll print the complete set of original lyrics at the website. Director Vincent Minnelli uh, and Judy Garland and her co-star, Tom Drake, all had to convince Martin to write something a little more upbeat in nature. So here's Judy Garland's version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. This comes directly from the soundtrack to Meet Me in St. Louis. Have yourself a merry little let your heart be light Next year all our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of
Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas eventually reached number 27 on the Billboard chart, and it was a huge hit with the overseas troops. You might also be aware of a slightly different version, where instead of Until Then We'll Have to Muddle Through Somehow, we hear Hang a Shining Star Upon the Highest Bough, and some musicians I hear kind of split the difference. They sing it one way in the beginning and the other way toward the end. That change, anyway, came at the request of Frank Sinatra, who approached Hugh Martin to see if he couldn't again come up with something a little bit more festive for the song. And it seems like ever since then, that's the lyric we hear more often than not. I'll Be Home for Christmas, especially the recent recording by Josh Groban, has come to symbolize the sense of separation that so many families feel at this time of year. Kids grow up, they move out, and these days they are more likely to be hundreds of miles apart rather than just, you know, across town or in the next town over. And it's during holiday seasons that people count on getting back together, even if only for a little while. But the song was originally written by Walter Kent and James Kimball Gannon. They were a generally successful composing duo, but nothing else they wrote had the same impact as this song. It was recorded by Bing Crosby in 1943, and it went straight to the heart of the matter as a narration of a soldier who is thousands of miles away from everyone he knows and loves. It became the most requested song at USO shows, and the magazine Yank, which was written especially for GIs, wrote that Bing Crosby accomplished more for military morale than anyone else of that era. That said, the song was banned by the BBC because they thought it would undermine morale. Oddly enough, most versions of the song, including Bing Crosby's, leave out the opening lines, and I'm not sure why. Here's Josh Groban's version of I'll Be Home for Christmas, which begins with recorded messages from American troops stationed overseas and then begins with those often deleted opening lines. And here's a spoiler alert. It ends with recorded messages, too. Stick around to hear those. This is Captain Patrick Hawken, and I want to wish a very Merry Christmas to my family in Tennessee and to my beautiful girlfriend in California. I miss you all, and I'll be home soon. My name is Specialist Brooke Frisk, and I'm in Baghdad, Iraq. I would like to wish all my family and friends Of a place I love Even more than I usually do And although I know It's a long road back I promise you I'll be home for Christmas 
Christmas was Bing Crosby's second straight Christmas hits, spending 11 weeks on the Billboard charts and peaking at number three. Elvis Presley recorded the song in September 1957 that was featured on the LP, Elvis's Christmas Album. Singer Johnny Mathis also covered the song on his Merry Christmas Album in 1958. That was the number two Christmas Album of 1963 and 1964, because prior to 1963, there were no Christmas album rankings. In December of 1965, astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Lovell, while on Gemini 7, requested I'll Be Home for Christmas to be played for them by the NASA ground crew. Since the incarnation of the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1958, cover versions by singer Camila Cabello and American singers Kelly Clarkson and Josh Groban are the only versions of the song to enter the chart. I mentioned I'll Be Home for Christmas as Bing Crosby's second Christmas hit. His first one, of course, came a year earlier, and it's the one that really got the music industry to realize that a secular Christmas song could be commercially viable. Now, you might be thinking that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came first, but while the story was written in 1939, the song wasn't written and recorded for about another 10 years. Of course, I'm talking about White Christmas, which was originally written for the 1942 film Holiday Inn. White Christmas kind of set the wheels in motion for giving us holiday songs that were based in nostalgia and a longing for years gone by. And before that, the Christmas song, well, the Christmas film for that matter, they weren't really thought of as a market in themselves, you know? Bing Crosby first sang the song on the Craft Hall, uh, Craft Music Hall radio show on Christmas Day in 1941. That was only a couple of weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. About five months later, he knocked out the recording to White Christmas in about 18 minutes. By most accounts, 
he didn't really think it was going to be especially successful, telling composer Irving Berlin, quote, I don't think we have any problems with that one, Irving. Now, Bing Crosby was typically pretty shrewd when it came to the music industry, but it's safe to say that he vastly underestimated the song's potential. For what it's worth, Irving Berlin thought much the same way. But the 1942 single spent 11 weeks at the top of the charts and eventually became the title track to a 1954 movie, also starring Bing Crosby. But here's a little secret. The master to the 1942 recording was damaged, so Crosby had to re-record it in 1947, and that's the version that you're used to hearing. They use the same orchestra and the same backup singers for both versions, but the second recording added flutes and a celesta at the start, so you can hear a subtle difference between the two. So now, I present to you the original 1942 recording of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow Be 
White Christmas isn't a war song per se. However, you do have to remember the timing of the writing of the song. Plus, when the film Holiday Inn was released the following year, there was a scene which was really little more than wartime propaganda. And that scene was added specifically as a response to Pearl Harbor. During the song Freedom, we get numerous shots involving wartime production, General MacArthur, President Roosevelt, military exercise, and planes flying in formation overhead. Now, the 1947 recording is the biggest selling physical single of all time in any musical genre, with over 100 million records sold worldwide and at least 50 million of them as singles. But here's the thing. Just as I'm, I'll Be Home for Christmas was typically recorded without an opening verse, Why Christmas usually has a missing first verse, but you can hear it on Neil Diamond's Christmas album, Bette Midler's Cool Yule album, the Crash Test Dummies Jingle All the Way album, and the Carpenter's Christmas Portrait. Here's the Carpenter's version of that missing first verse from 1976. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. But it's December the 24th, and I'm longing to be up north. If you're a fan of the Carpenters' Christmas music and you like the physical media, well, then it might be worth your while to purchase their CD entitled Christmas Collection that compiles both of their Christmas albums and keeps them in the original track order. As I mentioned earlier, Bing Crosby's 1947 recording of White Christmas is the best-selling single of all time, but it is also worth noting that White Christmas also holds the distinction of being the third most recorded song of any genre with over 2,100 recordings made. Having said that, it's only the second most recorded Christmas song. The all-time winner for that category, and in fact for all categories, would be Silent Night, with over 3,700 interpretations committed to tape, or wax, or hard drive, or whatever other medium. And that, cousin, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone. Also, if you'd be so kind, perhaps you could even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. Don't forget, if you're a patron, you get a newsletter about 48 times a year, which is my little thank you for your support. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow the show on the social medias at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, which has oftentimes a few extra bits. Have a great holiday season, and thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is. When you need- 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.